0: From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today... A musician and an outdoorsman known to the world as Survivor Man, and a producer known to the world for his classic work with Guns N' Roses and many more. The fruit of their collaboration, the album Bittern Lake, is available now through Megaforce Records. Hello and welcome, Les Stroud and Mike Klink. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? Good morning.
1: Good I got morning. two. I'm in a room. Oh great. I'm in. I've got two mics and three mics in front of me.
0: Uh, yeah, I know. It's the room of mics. Yeah, you can really tell your parents put a lot of thought into your name. <laughs> <When> they, <laughs> when they what do we call Mike.
1: him? Oh, I don't know, Nathaniel? No, Mike's good. Just go with
0: Mike. I did better than my dad, who uh, his my grandmother had had two sons by the time he came along, and she was completely out of ideas. She'd named a Pat and a John, and she was flummoxed. And so apparently a neighbor named my dad. <laughs> and uh, What's his name? Well, she said, so the neighbor said, I always said if I had a boy, I'd name him uh, Lenny. And so my dad was to be named Lenny. And then, this is old school, on the altar, the priest who was baptizing him said, I won't do it because there is no Saint Len. And on the spot, the priest said, your name is Michael. Hmm. And they made him Michael Leonard Tully, and that just flew in those days. Can you imagine nowadays a priest? I mean, that would be, Twitter would explode for a solid week. Yeah, yeah. And they just said, okay, fine, we'll just call him Len. And so I ended up being a a junior just because my mom uh, also, was uh, very inventive when it. This came to is first so names. far into
1: this conversation. I'm actually daydreaming about something else right now. I apologize, you know, let's bring it back in.
0: <laughs> so, how did your two pass? Sorry, I'm still caught on the
1: fact that my my name is Leslie, and in school, if you you know, oh, in the '70s, when your name is Leslie and you're a guy, L E S L I E, it's not good. It's just not good. So, I'm actually envious of
0: the name Mike. So, there you go. Yeah, yeah. It's it's simple and to the point. Yeah. It's tougher than Leslie. Yeah, well, you, you've you made the best of it. Um, do you think that informs your personality? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You, th- you think so? Yeah, well, or it could have been my personality itself,
1: but uh, uh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? How much does one's actual name inform their personality how much does one's actual name change who they are or what they're going to do or how they're going to be because you know someone in grade 5 could have said Leslie that's a girl's name and I could have punched him in the head instead of getting punched in the head I don't know. I, I I don't know. I don't know the answer to your question,
2: Michael. I, I'm daydreaming about.
1: Yeah, yeah. We are all daydreaming. <laughs> I just we, had a Julian here. you in look her at last that time, and it's the sixty same... seconds, and your interview's gone off the rails before you even get started. Mike.
0: See, unless this was the direction I was always hoping to take it in. There you go. I'm very very comfortable. We got We got plenty of time here, and I'm I'm happy to uh, to meander. How did your paths cross? How did you come in contact with one another? Uh, uh long
1: story short. Uh, we have a mutual friend, uh, a guy I, I grew up with, uh, a high school um, guy named Noel Golden. And Noel uh, eventually made his way into the recording industry and did very, very well and worked with Mike Clink on, on many, many projects as his engineer. And Noel and I have had this kind of, uh, I'm doing this on radio, but it's like a, a, a weaving in the air. like we, we would see each other and talk to each other and then, and then not for eight years. Ten years, twelve years, and then we mm-hmm. would again, and then not. And when we did again one time, and I said, "Listen, man, you know, I know I'm surviving, man. I'm doing all this stuff, but let's check out my music." And he he loved it. And eventually, he said, "Listen, man, I'd like to introduce you to Mike Clink." And here's Mike sitting beside me now. And that's that's how it happened.
2: Yeah. So Noel called me, you know, and uh, I Noel was my uh, my right hand man for about uh, probably seven or eight years I brought him I I first met him in uh, Canada when I was doing a project in Canada with uh, a band called Triumph and he was so spectacular that when I was doing another record in uh, I was in Reno Nevada and I wasn't crazy about the personnel at the studio and uh, I called Noel up and I said uh, hey would you mind coming down to uh, work on another project with me and from that point on, I helped him get his green card, and and we worked together for years and years and years. But he called me up and he said, "Hey, you know, we as we would speak probably more than uh, a couple times a month, and just shoot the breeze." And and uh, he said, oh, "I'm working with this guy Les Stroud, and uh, he has a show called Survivor Man." Initially, I thought it was the show where people. Are, are sent on a trip and try to find their way out of somewhere, which is very similar to what he's doing. But, you know, it's all about not a big reason. reality TV fan. Uh, pardon me?
0: Not a big reality TV fan.
2: I'm not. Yeah, sure. I'm not. Nor,
1: so, nor am I. And I don't do reality TV, by the way. <laughs> interjecting right now. I'm well aware of Do you your, know my stance uh, on that? Okay. I, 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 we, <laughs> you, I digress. You, you
0: can grind your axe later.
2: Good. No, <laughs> I won't. It's, it's ground down. It's all right. <laughs> but— uh, but uh, you know, uh, Noel said, "Hey, I'm working with Les. Would you like to uh, to meet Les?" And I said, "Well, it depends on the music." So I got a copy of the music, and I really uh, felt something, and and that really has to affect me first. I really have to be into the music before I'm into to uh, even meeting with someone or it's a waste of time so uh, I met with Les and he played me some of the material that he had and uh, said that uh, he's been having trouble finishing it it was a project he had been working on for about seven years and uh, could I help bring it home and that's uh, that's what I did I kind of deconstructed it and then put it back together and uh, would ask questions like why is this here and he goes well I don't know. It's always been there. And I said, well, you know, it doesn't really belong there. And, uh, we finished that record and then we moved on to, uh, the Bitter Lake record, which is a record, uh, that we did up at his house in, uh, Ontario, Canada,
1: which ironically we've released first. Yes. So the, the, uh, the, the, Uh, the the, the, uh, secret album he's talking about we actually haven't released yet so it's now a 10 year project Uh, it is called Mother Earth actually and it's a much more ambitious studio uh, production so that's
0: Um, that's interesting why did that one get so held up this is your fifth album it's my
1: fifth you know independent artist but this one I'm now signed to Megaforce uh,
0: which is a a thrill Um, what was the stumbling block there with the the preceding album that made it drag out Uh, you know
1: I, I and Mike can can interject, but I I don't know that I'd say it's so much a stumbling block as uh, it's ambitious. Uh, you know, there's some guest players on there. You know, um, people like Slash and Steve I and Mindy Abair. Bear. Uh, it's bigger rock. You know, it, so it's it's a big piece to bite off especially when i'm that other guy and and then all of a sudden i'm throwing this big rock album at you and so so when mike heard my other stuff which by the way also there was a format involved here this was like all the musicians in one room playing and recording all together for the bitter and lake album so it's like old school recording yeah as opposed to the the secret album that we're discussing at the moment yet to come out that that's classic recording big many overdubs and so mike and i were, were you know and mike just said you know let's let's start with with the new one with bitter and lake and break open the doors with it so that when we launch mother earth which is the name of the next album with all these guest artists and so on it's a little e- more easy it's more palatable for for the listening for anybody who does listen to my music to go yeah that's just it's a progression man we get it you know? does that make sense mike
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, as I said, the the first record was an ambitious record. I think it took a lot of time because uh, you were involved with uh, your television show, yeah, and back and forth. Even when I was, uh, I got involved in, in uh, finishing that record. You know, it was due to the fact that uh, the recording was contingent upon when you were in town which was not a whole lot of times and then uh uh, we got it done and we recorded in multiple places i think it was canada and nashville l.a but it is an amazing record but um i just felt that that record is so special that uh after we had recorded the intention was to release the record but then in the meantime we had recorded the record uh at his place up in uh, a new in record Canada, yeah. the bitter Lake record. And I thought, well, this would be a great entree for people to, to listen to and, and, uh, be able to digest and understand, uh, what less is about, understand what the, the, the messages and, and it's more of, uh, a, a rootsy kind of record and, uh, I think it's a, a great starting point for, for Les's, uh career.
0: Makes more chronological sense. Gotcha. Is it, uh, Mike, is this the first time that someone has reached out to you directly or through an intermediary saying, well, there's this guy or this woman who's a celebrity for X, Y, or Z, but their real passion is music, and all of a sudden
2: you're saying no to producing a Steven Seagal album? <laughs> it's <laughs> It has happened. There he are, can play some good guitar, uh, you know there have been some uh some other uh people that have reached out to me um and i felt that uh probably they were better off uh as a uh, a television star or a film mm-hmm. star than they were a musician so i've i've passed on, on that i mean i don't say yes to every project i mean i have to know that i can give it my all and i have to believe in the music i have to believe in the artist and that's really the determining factor for me. You know, it's it's got to be a passion and something that they're committed to. And I and I knew after speaking with Les that that was something that was uh, first and foremost in, in his mind.
0: That's a nice luxury to have. I'm assuming early on in your career, you kind of had to work on who was coming through the studio.
2: Well, I can't, you know, I worked on whoever was coming through the studio. I, I started out at the record plant in Los Angeles on Third Street, right down the street from here, right next to the Beverly Center. And it was a four-room studio. We had uh, four remote trucks. We had uh, actually uh, two studios on boats. So there were a lot of a lot of projects that were coming through there. And being an employee of the studio, yes, I, I worked on whatever anybody wanted me or needed me to, to work and whatever the traffic manager felt that I would be uh, an asset to. Uh, But once I left the confines of uh, the record plan and went out on my own independently, I was lucky enough to have success because I picked my projects very carefully. And, and my first uh, hit was uh, the eye of the tiger. And that gave me some latitude to be able to pick and choose. And, and uh, I, I've been uh, very lucky to to be able to do that. So so yes, it's. Uh, um, I don't want to fail. I mean, I, I want to deliver the best I can for the artist. And uh, if I if I don't believe in the project, it's not going to do as well as uh, it could.
0: Sure, that only makes sense. That that in a perfect world, that's the way you ought to be. Everybody ought to be working. So less people would not necessarily know you as a, as a musician. Um, I, I sort of know the, your backstory, but for people who don't know, how, do you, how does music work into what you do and who you are?
1: Uh, well, it's, it's an integral part of, of, of what I do and who I am. I mean, the initial phase of my life was falling in love with uh, Adventure and Wilderness through Jacques Cousteau and Wild Kingdom and Tarzan movies. But when I was 14, I listened, uh, uh, well, actually... A music teacher brought, I already knew I had an affinity for music, played in the little school band, bass violin, that sort of stuff. And then a teacher in music had a study, Goodbye Olympic Road, and that was it. I went, whoa, what is this? And that was it for that. It was music from then on. So I did spend 10 years solidly trying to be Neil Young you know, trying to be a rock star and be in the music industry. And I, I worked on uh, music videos and and uh, I was a producer at Much Music up in Canada, sure. you know, our version of MTV. And uh, so it was, and then I, so all the way through, and I was actually writing for record, I was writing for BMG and they were taking my music to Bruce Springsteen. So that was all in my DNA, all in my system as a young guy trying to be a rock star. Um, but I then, the, the change came And I reverted back to my love of wilderness when I became disillusioned uh, with the music of the 80s and the, the prevailing musical thoughts in the in the eyes of the public what what, are we talking about here rock is dead rock is dead rock is dinosaur you know all that kind of it was prevailing and i and i worked at much music so it was really thick in my world i couldn't hide away and just listen to acoustic and i was a big fan of acoustic stuff like whether it be bruce coburn or all the traditional singer-songwriters you know uh i say bruce coburn because you know canadian dude um and so, uh, yeah, it was a big moment of disillusion to be sitting there going, "I hate Depeche Mode, I can't stand Spandau Ballet," you know. And I was sitting there going, "You know, uh, I'm, i I think I'm done with this. I think I'm done." Disillusioned musician, writer, yeah. singer, those, songwriter. Those snare drums know.
0: got really big for a minute. Boy, there.
1: oh boy! Yeah, uh, and the hair bands was not my kind of rock, you uh-huh. know. Um, so a lot, you know, of
0: the, a lot of the stuff Mike would have been working on is the stuff probably, that's driving you Probably probably
1: of- some probably <laughs> some for sure. But you know what yeah, I didn't I was for
2: take exception to that. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Earlier on when you said of the tiger. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, listen, you know, the thing is what I didn't foresee uh and this is totally not to blow smoke up his butt, but what I did not foresee in the mid-80s was the return of rock, which I think came as a result of a a handful of bands. Pearl Jam, Guns and Roses, right? Those bands were to me the return of because if you really sit back and listen to what they're doing, if you listen back, sit back and listen to a Slash or a Mike McCready solo, they're just doing Freebird. You know, they're just doing rock and roll in yeah, the end. Just noodling in the pentatonic. Just, you know, yeah. I mean that was the beauties. Of, not to go down that road too far. I mean that was the beautiful things. of Slash, he didn't didn't do a million notes. He played tastefully rock and roll. So I didn't foresee that. So I pulled out as a disillusioned artist. I'd been writing since I was fourteen, uh, so so my lyrical content was always strong. I, I that's where my ten thousand hours went. By the way, it was never in the chops of being a a soloist. I can blow a pretty mean blues heart, but everything else, I'm just a faker. But it was writing songs. You know, like it, it's it's easy for me to craft seventeen different verses in a day if I'm working with people or writing. It's just it's my ten thousand hours. But yeah, I gave it all up in the mid '80s and said I'm going to go paddle a canoe, and that's that. You know, long story short, when Survivor Man came about, I, I put my skill set of
0: filmmaking through music videos combined with my adventuring and became Survivor Man. Right, which is a perfect marriage and, and right place, right time, and mm. um, spawned uh, a genre, really. Mm. Uh, so. Stylistically, you must have over, uh, undergone some sort of evolution. Everybody does. Everybody tries on different, you know, guises as, as, when they're young, in particular. Because you were in a David Bowie cover band <laughs> at one point, right? You read, you've been doing some reading, eh? yeah. And Diamond Dogs, if I'm not mistaken, yeah.
1: The Diamond Dogs. I was the Mick Ronson
0: clone. So the the album, the music that I hear on uh, Bitter and Lake does not sound like a guy who would ever have been a Mick Ronson clone. Like, how are hmm. there embarrassing photos out there?
1: Oh there are very definitely <laughs> embarrassing photos out there. Um just go on my my, my social media and look for the throwback Thursday I see. posts, you know. Yeah. Definitely some embarrassing. Uh, what
0: well, was the 80s too. It was the I had hair. <laughs> Big yeah, hair, which was a dangerous thing to have yeah. <laughs> in the mid 80s. So let me ask you some individual questions about your your both of your paths before we come back to we're going to spend plenty of time believe me on on the album. Um less I am told by your uh, publicist that you have encountered Bigfoot. <laughs> Is
1: that what she said? Yes. Yeah,
0: she'd be wrong about that.
1: Well, it's hard to say, but but what what's uh that's a comment. Is there a question in there?
0: Uh have you do you believe you have
1: encountered Bigfoot in the wild? Oh, that's a great way to ask it. See, usually people go, Do you believe in Bigfoot? And what I like to say, like, you know, if I'm at a party and it's a it's a matter of attitude and someone's like, oh, dude, do you believe in Bigfoot, I'm I'm done. I'm out of the conversation. But if mm-hmm. someone goes, Listen, man, I'm like What's going on with this? So, and, and the way you just put it, do I believe I've encountered B- Bigfoot? That's a better way to ask the question. Because to me, it's all about an incredible phenomenon that is ripe with thousands of anecdotal references, not a dozen. Not, we're not talking about Tooth Fairy here. We're talking about historical references that have nothing to do with modern media and social media. Spanning cultures. Yes, yeah, spanning hundreds of 50, uh, uh, over hundreds of of uh, Aboriginal cultures that took it all for granted. I believe that I've had some incredible encounters that I cannot write off to moose or bear or wolf or bobcat or mountain lion. And I know my, I know my wildlife, but there's things that have happened. It's like, okay, that's not mammal. That's not, that's not animal. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, a bear doesn't throw rocks out of the forest in your general direction you know maybe you the have, next car these had rocks thrown at you i've had some experiences like that yes and uh sounds and trees being pushed over oh trees fall in the forest all the time on a day without any wind and i'm talking it's probably happened over uh, at least 15 16 times no wind and, and you know a 100 yards away from me and when there's already been strange things going on so Short answer is I've had some crazy things go on out there, and I consider it a fascinating phenomenon. And I think, and I'm the guy to go out and check it out.
0: And if you had to p- put your life on it, if you had to bet, is Bigfoot out there? What would your bet be? Oh, I, absolutely. And I'm a horrible gambler. I suck. At, <laughs> I only
1: gamble on yeah. sure things, which means it's not gambling at all.
0: Yeah. And, and I would put my you money. on it. You would say it's it. a sure thing. And yeah. the only the only counter I have to that is: Is there anything that big that we haven't? Th- That we haven't found the remains of that we're pretty sure is also out there.
1: Well, take a look, for example, for years, the the, the legend of the massive uh, whale eating, uh, um, my mind's going blank, Um, not shrimp, Um, you know. A squid? Squid. Yeah. For years, that was just legend. Like a Jules Verne thing. Yeah, folklore, nonsense, Jules Verne, all of that. And then one day, a Japanese trawler hauls one aboard, and there it is, big enough to eat a sperm whale. Mm-hmm. You know, so got to get the Japanese
0: out there in the Pacific
1: Northwest. A, or, it's exactly. Yes. So there you go. There's your answer. to that.
0: Um, when did you discover that, like, survivalism really scratched I- an itch for you? Like, is 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 it for everybody? Is it waiting to be unleashed, or do you think that it? it, it it speaks to some people and other people are are actually better suited to live in boxes.
1: Well, no, no one's suited to live in boxes. The quick precursor to this is that what is for everybody is a connection to the natural world. That is for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, That that biophilia, that our natural connection to the wilderness, uh, that reality is for everybody. Survival skills, it's just one way to facilitate that. And and it was... bunch of skills that I fell in love with. Um, as much as I fell in love with canoeing, dog sledding, sea kayaking, hiking, anything that put me in touch with trees and nature, I was in love with, you know, but survival survivor man just hit. That's what happened. I, I found a a root, a route and a road that, that, that paid the rent, you know, and that I loved. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, why it touches, a chord with people. Why it did touch a chord with people, I think, is because it's one of those skills that that even you might say, I wonder, you know, if I was like really like like being like Tarzan, I was completely. I wonder if I could survive, or would I end up in fetal position sucking my thumb?" You know, most of you know most of us. I think there, there's a fascination there. But but there are lots of you know, as Jim Gaffigan says, "I'm what you call indoorsy." You know, I don't want to. You know, why would you go out and you know you know? There's always the worry about bears and stuff like that. But we have pictures of trees in our houses for a reason. You know, people heal better in hospitals by looking at it, by looking at a tree. They heal better. Scientifically, that's been proven and peer-reviewed. Come on, think about that a little deeper. So that's that's my answer to you. Is that I I think what it is it's the connection to the natural world,
0: right? Biophilia. That's a, a word I'm familiar with, thanks to Bjork, actually. But she oh, really? an album called Go that, Bjork. and I think like a like a VR installation. Which now that I think of it, is very ironic that we were all standing inside a room with VR headsets on, so we could experience biophilia. Well,
1: it's a modern world, you know. We live a life of conflicts, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, um,
0: hey, I I I fly an ultralight
1: plane. I flew in a jet to get here. I drive a car, you know. We lead a life of conflict. That doesn't mean that I can't massively celebrate nature at the same time.
0: What percentage of time do you still uh, spend like off the grid, or aspire to spend off the grid? What's Ooh, the balance for you? As much as possible. I just got. I just finished doing
1: five days in the Marble Mountains just north of here. Where's uh, that? Uh, Marble Mountains, Mount Shasta, Northern California. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, you got to go, man. You got to go get some biophilia happening for you again. It's it's. Uh, unbelievably if and and since since I'm well this show's going to go many places but for example here in Beverly Hills here in here in LA I mean you know it's not that far you know and wow it's powerful and beautiful you come back feeling alive and strong and and uh, so yeah so short answer is as much as possible
0: yeah. What What do you know? So when you do that, because you're an interesting person, a lot of like out, outdoorsy people just kind of Jeremiah Johnson, they just kind of stay out there as somebody who is who is equally comfortable in both worlds or at least has to function in both worlds. When you plop yourself down in a place like Los Angeles, like what do you notice lacking missing? Substandard that you you can't get here. That people like Mike. I'm assuming you spend most of your time in civilization. Yes. What what are people like Mike and I missing out on? That is the first thing that hits you in the face when you when mm. you get off a plane. Uh,
1: you know, I think it, I think it would be that daily touch with nature. You know, in Japan they call it Shinrin Yoku, which is now it's a mandatory thing within professional uh, fields in Japan where you, you you mandatorily get ten minutes to go sit beside a tree. Wow. Yeah, they build uh, so this building would have a courtyard garden that is there for shinrin yoku so you can go, you can leave the <laughs> studio and we can go out out there and sit by a tree and 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 let the forest bathe you. And and We got a smoking area. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We got a smoking area, which is concrete and glass, I'm sure. It's that it's that 10 minutes of of forest bathing. You know, I've been to Mike's house and he's got a, a wonderful backyard with trees all around it. Whether he knows it or not, this is the beauty of nature, is it works on you whether you even want it to or not. Right. And so that's what's missing. But it's here. There are parks in LA. There are parks in Beverly Hills. There are places with trees. And sometimes all I want to say is, look, man, you don't have to go to Peru. You don't have to be survivor, man. You don't have to go to the jungle. But you got to park down at the end of the street. Take 10 minutes every yeah. day and do that. And the the stresses do you know they dissolve that's what people need here Um, do
0: you have a smartphone? Oh yeah, I have a smartphone and a tablet and a laptop and computers. How much do you do? You feel like you spend uh, enough time, not enough time, or too much time on those? Too much,
1: but don't we? Everybody's <sighs> how many? How many who, who's sitting in this chair talking to you is not going to answer that question with too much? Mike, I spend too much time.
0: I was hoping you were going to be the first person who was just like, "Oh come on!" I see through that nonsense. It's you and uh, Chuck D, a public enemy. I met him, and, and and he was instantly like scrolling through. I was like, "Oh, they got Chuck D too." Yeah. Well, this no. is the most addictive. Drug that has ever been invented. If people like you and Chuck D can't that say no, that is a to-
1: very interesting comment. I just I'm about to release um, a, a, do- a feature documentary film. Okay, and it's a, it's about a, um, a school shooting up in Canada, a tragic tragic oh, school on. shooting. There's a point in the film. I'm out on a canoe trip. We're in the middle of the north. We're way, we're as remote as anybody can imagine in their brain in northern Canada. And I'm interviewing one of the the boys from the school and. And I, I'm talking about you know what what you know what you know what's it, you know how do you like being out here? Oh, you know no no cell phones. He says no cell phones, and I go oh. I pick up on that and I go you know why? And he goes I don't know. It's, it's, I'm on it all the time. Why? He goes I oh, it's and and he goes and this was telling he goes it's it's addicting. And while he's saying that, his his hands are miming texting like he. You know, he's, he, you could see him. He's like, oh, it's addicting. And he, his brain is there. His thumbs are moving and he's, he's not holding anything in his hands. And then I say, you know, so it's like a breath of fresh air out here. He gives me, it's my favorite part in the whole documentary. He just goes, oh yeah. And you, it's just like, wow, there's this 18 year old boy who's addicted to the cell phone and he got out in nature on this man group trip, you know, with Survivor Man,
0: and he's breathing again. I saw a woman at Target yesterday that was wearing a T-shirt that said, I'd rather be texting. (laughs) Uh, Talking to Les Stroud and Mike Klink, the album Bittern Lake is available now through Megaforce Records. Mike, um, while I have you here, before we get back to the project, I have to ask you a a couple of questions about your work before meeting Les. When is the first time you heard yourself described as legendary?
2: Boy, I, I think it's been... Probably in the last two years, maybe. He makes me
1: call him that, by the I He says, hey, hey, it's not Mike to you, last. It's legendary Mike.
0: Right. And, he picks up the phone, you're talking to the legendary. Uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just been recently that, that uh, people have been saying legendary, and I'm not enamored with it, to tell you the truth. You Why know? is that? Well, I think that it uh, gives you the connotation that uh, your career is kind of over, and... Uh, I think that I've worked on legendary records. I mean, that's what I strive to do. But, um, you know, I continue to be very active and, and to, to uh, still produce uh, records. And uh, I think it bothers me less. When when, when uh, I first heard someone say the legendary or saw someone write have it in writing, I was like, don't call me that. Don't call me legendary. But uh, it, it's okay now. It's OK. So there's worse it, things to be. Yeah, absolutely. Called. Absolutely. So, you know, there's people that in this business that are not as fortunate uh, to be called legendary. So I'm, I'm going to take that. I so, think you're just legendary amongst the women. Mike. I think that's what it is. <laughs> I, I assume the, that's more or less. What yeah, the, you know, I mean, what it's from, yeah. Guns and Roses. Nothing not, to do with the music. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, what is your uh, it, it, when you think of Appetite for Destruction? W- what is the mental image or the anecdote that to you is like, that's what that's what that was?
2: Um you know that record was unlike anything I had ever done before. I mean we were talking about the 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 bands of the 80s. I mean I had had uh success working with bands like uh, uh Survivor, the Jefferson Starship, Eddie Money and Heart and those records were different than the uh the record with Appetite. Even though I had listened to uh Aerosmith uh and, and enjoyed that kind of music because I, and Southern rock, I mean, which is different than, than uh, what I was doing, which was more pop rock at the time. It was so much fun to kind of get out of that, out of that mold and, and uh, work with the band. I mean, they lived the life. I mean, they, they were the real characters. There was nothing contrived about them. And that's what I really appreciated about them. And that's what I loved about, uh, working with them and making that record. They never once said to me, you know, we're looking to sell millions of records. We're looking to, you know, become highly successful. What they wanted to do was to make the best rock record possible. And uh, that's what we set out to do. And that's what we achieved. I mean, they never, ever had anything to motivate them other than, to make great music,
0: well, Les, you're talking about how you know you were thinking, you were feeling, and many people were feeling about where rock was in the mid '80s. If you were trying to be the next Def Leppard, recording an album like that was, on paper, not the way to do it. I've, I know, I've heard Slash say that he thought the album would go gold. It'd be like a cool cult. They'd be like a better Bang Tango, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Is that about what you would have expected?
2: No, you know what? Though? I, it's you never want to predict the success uh, of an album or a TV show or, or anything, because I, I believe it's the kiss of death. But in my uh, in my career, I've uh, predicted predicted the success of a few records. And the first one was Eddie Money's first record, the one with uh, Two Tickets to Paradise and Baby Hold On. There was just something about him and that music and that time. I said, you know, this, this record is going to be a big record and uh, it took nine months and I think three singles deep in order for uh, Columbia records to make it happen, but they didn't give up on it. The same thing with the guns N' roses record when we were doing the record after it was over. And I was listening back to the rough mixes uh, with uh, Tom Zutat, the A&R person for the, and the person that signed him to Geffen. He said, Mike, what do you think this record's going to do? And I, I said, well, I think it's going to sell two million records. I mean, I really felt confident after listening to the material, living with it, and getting to understand the guys that we had a very good chance of having a, a great record and one that people would uh, would love. And uh, he said, you're wrong. We're going to sell five million. And both of us were wrong combined. So,
0: yeah, that's a so. that's a tremendous. Uh, yeah, that's a. Right, that's a good, really good way to be wrong.
2: Yeah, but I, but I felt really good about that record. I really did. It was There was something magical about it. I mean, when the guys were out there and they were on and they were playing, the hair on my arms stood up, and that that doesn't happen often.
1: You know, I, I think the the the, the question, the, the the sort of the commentary that you're, you're getting into is, I've always found really interesting because it, it, it's like, depending on your perspective. So, in Michael's perspective as producer or the record label's perspective. It's almost part of their thing to be predictive of how well this thing will do. You know, um, yeah, it's the record business. Sure. Yeah, but then in the artist role, you know, it, you walk a very delicate balance there. And so, someone like a Slash or myself, with the, with the new project, you you in your mind want to just oh, it's just me, man. It's just my art. It's my music. I'm just. It'll be whatever it is. But there's always the voice way in the back going. Oh, I hope it sells really well. You you're 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 caught in a place of of purism versus just pragmatic hope, you know? Yeah. And I find it a struggle on, on which way to play. So I I, I I hate it when I feel insecure and I'm on the phone with Mike and every once in a... And I kind of, you know, I So how, how do you think it's going to do, Mike? Like, I, I don't actually want to ask him that question, but I do. It's a very... The, the subject matter you just brought up is a strange place to be producing what is art. And let's let's appetite. It was art. It was rock. art Absolutely. You know, but at the same time, it's it's powerful in the sense of uh finances <laughs> business you know whether or not it's going to do well it's just a very weird place to hover and and, and consider well
0: but, this is probably a very i'm sorry go ahead mike
2: well i was to say you know as an artist you're putting yourself out there and everybody wants to be liked i mean that's you know that gets back to the cell phone i mean kids f- go to instagram and and facebook and all those other uh you know social apps to be liked and i think that that's is, is a common theme in, in uh, a couple of the things that we're talking about. As mm-hmm. an artist, you want to know that uh, that your art is being appreciated by other people, and part of that is, you know, the success of the record and being liked. This is maybe a very naive way of looking at
0: things. In your experience, Mike, can how many artists can really say, I am going to make something successful and I'm just gonna sit down to figure out something that will sell to people because it seems like anybody who's been around I'm I'm a songwriter, you know, less you're a songwriter, if ultimately it comes down to waiting for you just do whatever your process is, you bang around an acoustic guitar, or whatever, and you wait for that little kernel of an idea and I don't I've never met anybody who had control over and it also must be a commercially successful. It has to be a thing that just drops down from heaven that you fall in love with and you don't get to decide if that is something that top 40 is going to respond to or not. Or am I missing
2: No, I think that you hit the nail on the head. I I don't think that you could pre- ever predict the success of any record uh you know even though I said that I I did predict it. I mean in the big picture, it's it's difficult to predict. I mean, all you have to do as an artist, as a producer, as a writer, is do the very best work that you could possibly do, put it out there, and hope that people like it. I mean, it's out of your control. I mean, a lot of it has to do with timing. It has to do with luck. It has to do with teamwork. There's so many factors that go into it. You must have been wrong along the way, too. Like, have you, were you
1: Were you wrong in a predictive sense and gone, oh, I really well, thought that was going to hit? Well... You don't have to
2: name who, but I mean... No, I'll mention one particular record that was signed. It was a band called uh, Roxy Blue.
0: (laughs) I was going to ask you about them.
2: Big hair band. Yeah. Signed to Geffen by Tom Zutat. Managed by Doug Thaler, who managed Motley Crue, and Motley Crue was huge at the time. Produced by Mike Klink. We had a couple songs, and especially one ballad that was a guaranteed hit radio hit for what the radio format was at that particular time by the time the record was made and we released the record i believe it was a month after we released the record and and you understand that things don't hit instantaneously uh we had the Seattle invasion we had soundgarden we had pearl mm-hmm. jam and the record, no one wanted to know anything about the record, but everybody had predicted this is a no-brainer. This this record cannot fail, and it's the kiss of death. It's the kiss of death. I went, I went for it, Mike. I bought that album. <laughs> oh, you know what? <laughs> I had this conversation with Noel Golden yesterday. By the way, mm. that who's Noel Golden? Noel Golden is the, the man who introduced us. Who, oh, okay. I'm who, sorry. Yeah, who introduced me. us? You know that what you do is that you make the best record possible and you never know what someone's going to like i was mixing a sammy hagar record at the studio but i really but music was starting to change then it was starting to get into the blink 182 vibe it was a little bit more modern rock and i was still doing uh what people would consider more of the classic uh rock and roll and i was up to do a particular band uh called size 14 and I was very nervous about uh getting the record and not, not not nervous about it but I didn't have a good feeling about getting the record because I hadn't done anything of that ilk but when the singer walked into the uh into the studio to meet me the first thing he did he was singing too hot to handle and I'm going how do you know that song no one bought the record except for Mike yeah <laughs> and uh he said no that was one of my favorite favorite records so it just goes to show that you've got to do your best work because you never know who it's going to uh uh, attract and who it's going to stick to
0: i was gonna here's the thread that i'll bring it back to to the project you did together very similar production between the roxy blue album and and bittern lake i that felt like that felt like an album that was i don't know if they were recording live in the studio but it certainly felt that way yeah they were okay yeah yeah. So this is a real uh this is a real lived in loose kind of recording. I th- Les, I think I hear you on the first song saying what is it? Let it run? Mm. Did you literally just decide to add an extra couple of bars on the finished what is the finished recording? No, great great pick up on that. That
1: was um uh that was you know not meant to be recorded on-microphone demo, you know, uh, uh, or, like you know, scratch vocal chit- banter, you know, and I was guiding the band. Um, interestingly enough, I mentioned Goodbye Albuquerque Road earlier, and I was, and, I, and I, once a year I watched the making of Goodbye Albuquerque Road, and, and and Gus Dungeon, the producer, uh, was playing a track, and you hear Elton John saying, A minor, E, you know, and you could hear that, right? Yeah. And so he says, oh, that's Elton talking to the band. Well, let it run. Was a moment of me saying saying to the band, "Let it run, don't don't go to the don't go back to the verse, keep you know keep going." Yeah. And but then the, the subject matter of that song, that was the JJ Cale cover, "Death in the Wilderness," mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> I just thought, you know, that was one of those happy. Uh, okay, so we're talking about the recording process. I love and, and 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 am even addicted to the happy accident, the stuff that happens that you weren't planning. Yeah. And that commentary. Uh, let it run during a song that was about all of, all of nature dying and the animals being, just, it, it, it's like I was, it's like I was saying it to the animals, you know, let them run, you know, it, it just had this weird connect. And I said to Mike at one point, and just in a text or an email, I said, Oh, you know where I say let it run, which was on like the, the faders up mix that we, you know, I would listen to I said, can you leave that in? And he did. And, it's there. I,
0: I, l- I love that stuff. There's a Smith song where I'm pretty sure the engineer asks Marcy for another take at the end of it, and it's just hilarious that he, oh, he does mess that. up once or twice in the track. And well, the that... guy asked him for another take, and obviously they kept the first one but left in the well, the overdub. Well, off,
1: uh, before we got into this, we talked about u- utilizing microphones, and in, back in the day, you know, in the '70s, as a '70s kid, you lay you lay back and you you would listen to stuff on headphones, yeah. and that's when you heard all kinds of little studio flips and flubs, and someone going. You know, or something like that. You know, a little cough, or a you know, dropping a pick, or I, I just, I don't know. Made it, it it always made it feel real for me, and that's why we did this process for Bittern Lake. Which, by the way, guys like Mike and the engineers, I think it's, I like to say, I think they have a love-hate relationship with it because I think they love the spontaneity, they love the, the happy accidents and the magic, but they hate the lack of isolation and control on the on the recording signal itself.
0: Yeah, we're pretty much back to like the 60s here, right? When mm. you just put up some like some like soundproofing buffer wall kind of things. Oh, that's nice. Uh, Jack jo- uh, Jack Johnson's got that uh, yeah, it's a it's a challenge it's a it's a whole different thing. How did you like being up in in Canada? Did you have to rough it at all being up there? <laughs> uh, oh, you was, suffered, yeah. didn't oh, you, Mike? It was terrible.
2: It was terrible. Which which bottle of <laughs> wine tonight? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, lust makes the uh recording environment very comfortable and for for myself and for the uh the crew and for the musicians. I mean, that's how you get the best out of people. To you know, make them feel comfortable and and not have to worry about uh, anything other than the music. So uh, I love Canada. Uh, I worked up in Canada quite a bit, and at one point in my life before I was married, I, I said that uh, if if Canada wasn't a foreign country, I'd consider moving there because the people were so great. I mm-hmm. loved the uh, the the area, the food, everything about it. Oh well, yeah, eh? I just couldn't, good people. Eh, yeah. yeah. I yeah. think I
0: think these days the the contrast is only making them look better and better. Right? <laughs> well, thank you, I, on behalf of all Canadians. I, you know, just to, to bring it back to
1: that recording thing, uh, because I, I really don't want to let that that the whole the big picture sort of die from your listeners or or, 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 or escape your listeners. You have to imagine a, a, a nice house on a lake. A big living room, and I've, I've got it set up for recording, big recording rooms and everything. And let's say 15 people, you know, seven or eight of which are musicians, dogs, um, to the point where now the next sessions we're planning, Mike and the keyboard player are taking over the meals. They want to, it's like, we want to plan the meals, less, you know, so it becomes, it's this old school thing, you know, when you, and, and music from Big Pink, it's that, that feel that, that I read about in so many stories of bands that stuck it out for three weeks or two weeks in one place and recorded an album. And that's what I provide.
2: You know, it's a, it's a challenge to record with everybody in the same room, open, uh, microphones everywhere with all the leakage, you know, the less vocal would get into the violin that was playing, but there's a magic that happens too when everybody's looking at each other and everybody's playing. And, and as he said, there's all those happy accidents that uh, come about along the way. And it's the musicians react differently, you know, as opposed to just putting on a set of headphones, sitting in a room and just playing an acoustic guitar. They're all there together. And, and it's just a, a, a lot of fun, uh, to make a record that way. And I, I have a lot of experience doing the, the live recording stuff. And, you and, do, that's right. And uh, I think it, it, it works out well.
0: Um, less lyrically, the album paints a pretty dire picture of where the environment, our physical environment, is is headed. Um, based on your experience as an outdoorsman, do you feel like our planet is like almost already past a point of no return in terms of what human beings have done to it and continue to do to it? No. The cynical less just wants to say, yeah, we're fucked. Yeah. But
1: I think as is my way, I refuse to accept that. My fear is this you know dystopia that we that we present in films. My fear is Blade Runner. I I, I fear Blade Runner, the the movie. You know, to me that's like yeah, that just looks like where, and I, I'm not so much talking about AI and all of this, but more the planet. The view. When every time we see these sci-fi movies with their dystopic view of 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 the future, I'm just like, ugh, I get this. It's like, shit, that's what it probably will be like, you know. So, I'm from this other angle, thinking, no, we we could, and I I, I hate to say it's it's like isolating places and putting them separating but we could at least do that why not have I mean imagine imagine if a whole country like say Costa Rica just stayed nature you know it, it said it up you know I mean Malibu just outlawed single-use planet plastics for example you know things that, if we just start going down that road so yeah that's my long answer to say no I I think that the the glass is half full in me says no if, if I thought the glass was half half empty I probably wouldn't have made this album. You know, but I think it's helpful.
0: But do you? Are there places that you go out into that you have personally seen change in your own lifetime as a result of climate change? Uh,
1: like what kind of change are you you're referring to? Like, what are you thinking?
0: Uh, like glaciers melting? Oh or, hell or yeah! Earth
1: deforestation. Other uh, everywhere I yeah. go, you know, and the and the stories are different. You know, everywhere you go now, if it's. Let's take my life as the example and that career as the example, going to remote places. You know, people who have no access to media whatsoever, living in the middle of the Amazon jungle, saying everything in the last 10 years, 20 years has just been very, very crazy. Everything seems, you know, and longer than that, 50 years, as long as, long as we can remember. Uh, you can't rely. <laughs> this is a crazy comment to make. You can't rely on the weather anymore. Uh, you kind of used to be able to. It's, it's, so, yeah, the changes, I see them everywhere.
0: That's really interesting, so I mean, if you want an unbiased because everything is politicized nowadays, I'm guessing um the uh y- yeah indigenous people in the Amazon don't lean blue or red they're <laughs> just,
1: or Facebook or Twitter either yeah, no this they is just, just what they are
0: observing and their life depends on it
1: ex- uh, that's well, all of our lives depend on it if I go a little deeper a little more you know. I don't know, never uh, with it, esoteric or something with it, or, or existential. But the, re- I mean, everything in this room, you know, from your microphone and clothing, to, you know, to my cell phone sitting in front of me, came from nature. So, 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 sure, their lives depend on it in the obvious way. Yeah, they in, got to go in, out and hunt a taper. Sense. Yeah, in the immediate sense. But our lives, you know, all of this stuff here, the soundproofing and everything, there's uh, there's nothing that you know of that didn't come from nature. And if we turn it into Blade Runner. You know, everything goes away
0: pretty quickly. Uh, I was not surprised to find out that you are a uh, uh, Jeremiah Johnson guy. <laughs> mm. You went as far as recording. That's the theme the theme song. Yeah, that's yeah. that's. Uh, what is it about that song that made you want to? Put oh, it, on it had to be
1: done. I mean, come on. You know, Jeremiah Johnson. It's just such a, It's just that that great thing to sing along in your head and. That's my favorite movie of all time. For, I'm for not certain. surprised. Yeah. yeah, of course it is. I mean, you know, I know it's a cliche, but but I mean, it's it's a brilliant film about I just want to go off to the wilderness, you know, and 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 Robert Redford does the, the, the star that just played it so well. But anyway, that music mm-hmm. just it was, and I just you know it's that finger picking, folky, you know, tribute to to, to you know exploring nature. Um, I love to recutting re- re- that.
0: Have you uh, ever thought about if you are to end your days by wandering off into one particular wilderness? Which one you might pick? Yeah, um, it
1: would be probably. You know, I think in life we go back to what we're familiar with. Mm-hmm. My familiarity is northern Canada. You know, I you know I go to northern Canada and I go out into the bush. Boom! I'm at home. I can make myself at home just about anywhere and I do love the Amazon jungle. But the minute I'm in, you know, Wabakimi Provincial Park up in Northern Ontario, it's it's home to me. That would be the place. It's
0: a solid choice. Uh we're just about done here. What's next for each of you guys? You want to go first, Mike? You got not yeah, just me, right?
1: <laughs> Mike's only working with me from now on, personal producer. Every time he oh, tells you he's got some other ba- excuse me. Uh, no, no, no. What do you mean? You're not working on my overdubs?
0: Well, Roxy yeah. blew up some new tunes. So. Yeah, yeah, there you go, there you
1: go. <laughs> Here, Mike, you t- you take it first, and then I'll I'll close off. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, we we still have a, a second batch of uh, material. We uh, have started a new record with uh, with Les, another uh, record live off the floor that we're doing up at his house in Ontario, and we're. I think six or seven songs deep into it. And we're going to record another five or six songs. So we'll do that in late August or September. So I've got that on the horizon. I just finished a a band getting back to my heavier roots. uh, uh, A band called Archer Nation out of Santa Cruz, three piece uh, cross between uh, Black Sabbath and uh, Megadeth, uh, which is soon to be released. Mm. And, uh, uh, less. Well, other than, you know,
1: finally yes. giving, sure. you know, Mike a, a respectable career, yeah. uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, obviously on, <clears throat> on my back, he's making himself, but, but, you know, I, I think, uh, well Mike didn't mention the other the the, the 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 secret album called Mother Earth which is our very uh, ambitious album that'll be next mm-hmm. um and as i said that's a full studio album with um lots of overdubs and uh, w- uh and we think very powerful music with some special guest uh, players on it so that'll be coming out soon um i have a series out right now on National Geographic just a quick quickie little series that i did for Nat Geo Wild about wildlife and stuff um and i uh Actually, finally went into a four way of, of of doing a documentary feature film that uh, we've submitted to TIFF and we'll be submitting to Sundance in Cannes called Losh, which is about the school shooting that happened up in Canada. And it actually approaches that subject matter like no other, you know, film has or I think will. There's there's no showing of blood on the sidewalk and crying girl outside the school and right. newsreel flashes. It's not that. It's something far more powerful, I think. But I guess. Mostly music music and performing.
0: Great. So thank you, both of you. Uh, The album, Bittern Lake, is available now through Megaforce Records. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. All right. Thanks.